Hello and welcome to another episode of the 30-Minute CMO Podcast. Uh, my name is Gorsh Huchua and I'm joined by my friend and partner, Alex McNamara, and by a special guest, Craig Barber, is joining us today uh, to really add to what is going to be a very interesting and special episode. The whole episode is going to be focused entirely on European soccer or football and the debacle and the amazing sort of Hinderberg-like implosion that was the Super League. I figure that probably a lot of people like me um, heard tangentially about all that was happening on the continent and wonder what really went behind the scenes, what led up to this, what were the dynamics from a marketing standpoint, what the impact might be on um, all of the teams that kind of participate in all of this. And so the way that we're going to structure today's episode is I'm going to play the role of dumb American and Craig, who hails from the UK, as is Alex. You guys are going to shed light and expertise onto our feeble brains. Sounds good? Sounds awesome. Sounds good. Now, uh, before we start, please state your allegiances, because I know you guys, when it comes to football, sort of hate each other. This is this is an amazing thing is we've managed to get two people on the podcast who support op- opposing teams. I support the wonderful, glorious Arsenal. Um, and Craig, who do you support? I support the mighty Spurs. And I'd like to correct you and say that I just hate Alex. I don't need to be about football. So it just adds <laughs> to the fuel, really. The Tottenham and Arsenal rivalry. Perfect. It's Okay. You, you, you're going to get smashed by City this weekend and you'll continue your trophyless run. It'll be, it'll be fine. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, you folded fast. All right. <laughs> well, I mean, it's... Yeah, to be honest, I'd probably be in the same position. Yeah. you got to laugh. Yeah. So we can do. So. Well, when you fire your manager three days before a, a final against... Pep and Manchester City, who are about to win the Premier League. Yeah, it's not much you can do about that. It's a bit like having your wife pregnant, about to give birth in three days, and you go to the doctor and say, "Get out! My little uh, my little brother's going to do this for us. He's going to deliver the baby." Which is basically <laughs> what we've done. That's it. So there you go. All right, paint a picture. Paint a picture. Well, this will be uh, um, this will be fun. Okay. Well, uh, give me an overview of how soccer is structured in Europe or football, uh, because we are not dealing with a monolithic structure here. Uh, we've got uh, England, which is not even the UK; it's England specifically. Then there is Italy, there is Spain, France. What are the national leagues? Just give me a quick overview and maybe just a kind of um, a, you know categorize them in terms of their eminence. Yeah, I'll I'll take the I'll take the UK bit, and then Craig, you can take the European bit. Um, but yeah, basically, what it, it's a, it's a pyramid structure. So um, there are eight tiers, I think, of of football, um, all from the bottom and ending at the top, which is the Premier League. And the key thing about it, and the key differences between these leagues and uh, the American leagues, is the uh, the merit based system of promotion and relegation which basically is if you finish in the bottom three of the Premier League, you get relegated to the championship, the league below, Mm -hmm. and uh, three teams from the championship come up each year. So it's a changing table at the top of 20 teams, Um, which when I first moved to the US and and I did not understand why college sports were so big here and then subsequently high school sports were so big is because there aren't these other leagues um so you have like the nfl and then you have college football which is bigger there are bigger stadiums in college football than there are in you know premiership football teams which is crazy um so so england um has that tier structure that is replicated across europe in each of the national leagues so there's the bundesliga in uh, in germany um syria la liga uh, league A as well. So each each country has its own um, domestic league, and within each of those domestic leagues, there are other cups, like in England, the FA Cup, um, the the League Cup, 
Um, so there are of several competitions happening um, throughout throughout the year. And then on the European side, um, so in, in terms of like the European competitions, there's two leagues, the Champions League, which is like the top tier of the European leagues. Um, and then there's the Europa League, which is the second tier of European. Um, and in England, the top four go through to the Champions League each year. So it's, a, again, merit-based system um, where you have to be, your league position dictates whether or not you make it into these leagues. And um, I think it's five and six go into the Europa League. Uh, okay, so that's that's on the club side. Now, Craig, yeah. what, what is UEFA? What, what do they do? So that UEFA is basically the corporation that, that kind of manages and, and, and looks after the European aspects of, of football. So you have, for example, CONCAF, which I believe is, is uh, South American. Mm-hmm. And um, dare I say, is it North American as well, Alex? But, it, you know, you've got a CONCAF on the mm-hmm. America side. You've got UEFA who kind of look after the European side. And, and UEFA in itself is a, is a huge and, and, you know, powerful um, system in itself. And, and they all kind of report into FIFA, which is kind of the governing body of the sport globally so historically we have seen uefa and fifa come to loggerheads and kind of have discussions on rules or competitions and how they have disagreed within the past but what's so unique and we'll come on to this of course is is that here we had fifa and uefa on the same side very much like me and alex being rival fans on the same side here so yeah. it's it's just unprecedented what what's happened We'll get to that in a second, obviously. But uh, Alex, you started touching a little bit on the competition uh, within the, the uh, within these leagues, and so there is the champion uh, champions champions league. league. There is Europa and Europa League, <laughs> right? Um, and as you said, relegation is also uh, so. Those those um, those those two serve as a reward, but then there's also the real fear of uh, relegation being a major factor. And as you said, this really contrasts with how American sports is structured. So if you think about it, with baseball, for instance, it would be the top, the bottom three teams uh, in each of the leagues, American League and National League, uh, potentially being relegated. So in this year, the Yankees could get relegated to. Uh, to the minor leagues if we had relegations yeah. yeah instead they won't because what instead they'll get is one of the top picks in the next year's draft and get some really amazing players and that and that is repeated in basketball in the nfl uh in hockey so it's kind of a closed a closed ecosystem without really there being losers yeah i mean i think baseball is a really good point in that the league the the leagues are closed in that the the minor you can never go from a minor league to the major leagues as a team right. which goes against the fundamentals of every european league and sport and fan because you know a lot of a lot of where you get it, a lot of where you get your satisfaction is you know getting promoted to the to the next league up from a fan point of view you're in you know the top tier of football so like when swansea get promoted um that's huge when burnley got promoted that was huge um, but we, uh, then, you know, the fear is you get, um, relegated. So like Portsmouth, for example, was a premier premier league team for a long time. And then they just, you know, through mismanagement of funds, they dropped through the system. I think they're in this division two now, um, or scrapping in and around in and around there where, you know, they were a premier league. So like the, the, the relegation is, is huge in terms of, financially you lose a lot of money i think when you get relegated from the premier league you get a parachute fund from the premier league to retain the best some of your best players to keep you afloat because the differences in tv revenue is huge and it's the same of like missing out on the champions league if you're a you know arsenal were in the champions league for 20 seasons or so and then have been the europa league for four seasons now um and that's a hit of like 20 to 30 million pounds a year in revenue just from partaking. And, you know, Arsenal being the serial, you know, consistent serial, uh, they were not like top four for so long and never got past like the last 16 round 
Um, and still that was enough money to like, you know, bring in new players, build a new stadium. Um, so like that from a financial point of view is a really big deal. Yeah. And we'll, we'll touch on the TV bit in a second, but, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but kind of the flip side of this is the Cinderella stories that can happen in European football. And, um, I believe a few years ago, it was a Leicester city that yeah. went from nowhere to winning the FA cup. Um, am I correct in, uh, in remembering yeah. that? You're wrong on that bit, but you're right about the Cinderella story. Uh, they, they won the premier league. Um, oh, the premier so league. over 38 games, a whole season, they were 5,000 to one odds, um, of, of winning. Basically you probably would have got better odds of them getting relegated as we've just mentioned. Um, so when that happened, it was just, even if you had allegiances with different teams like me and Alex, it was just magical. You knew that this would probably never happen again in your lifetime. It was just unreal. And that core aspect about soccer in, in, in Europe and, and the pyramid structure, it is how the underdog can still overcome basically the, the might of, of, these these super clubs these elite clubs um which is which really adds to, to kind of the excitement of it and I, so that that's that's the bit i want to dig in a little bit into because one of one of the themes that was constantly battered around during this super league drama was the meritocracy that exists in europe right and that the fact that teams can uh go from nothing to uh being at the very top on the flip side it does seem to me that um the system favors the rich clubs and the rich clubs just get richer there are no salary caps in uh, European soccer. And I know that in some leagues, especially in the Spanish leagues, as well as I think the, the, the Italian league, um, the teams there are notorious for overspending, getting into financial trouble, but signing insane contracts. I read that you know Juventus, I think, uh, makes as much money as it spends. Um, and uh, it's not really run as a business. Can you guys discuss this a little bit and just offer your input into sort of why cost controls have not been implemented given the, you know, the huge outlays of money that, uh, that is required on the players, especially the star players? Yeah, I think, I think, I mean, there has been cost control in theory, like the financial fair play, which is, you know, given um given clubs are you know the stipulation that they can't spend more than they earn in order to try and stop billionaire owners coming in and just pumping it full of cash but then you get like the manchester cities where you know they the their owners also own the airlines so suddenly they've got a you know a lucrative deal a sponsorship deal from emirates and it's you know 100 million dollars a season or something yeah. and so you know, so no one's saying that they're not allowed to do that, but also everyone knows where the money's coming from and why it's why it's going through that loop. Um, but yeah, I mean, like Barcelona just had their financial documents leaked, um, and their you know billion, I think one point two billion in debt or something like that. Uh, Real Madrid is in huge trouble um, with debt. You know, they love building like they're they're famous for the Galacticos. They're building teams of superstar players for the for the brand image. I think Juventus, you know, they bought Ronaldo for another like, you know, world record of you know, 80, 80 million dollars, 80 million pounds. And they were like, you know, it's worth it because we'll make that much money back in shirt sales. So it's yeah. it's less of a business. You know, no one, you know, is is really trying to make loads of money. It's all about building this brand and building this global brand of of you know, superstar players that everyone follows you where, you know, through the different revenue streams, you can make money, but you know, signing players is not, and is not one of them necessarily. And yeah. so, and so Craig, like talk to talk to me a little bit about the owners, because it seems like there's the, it, it's kind of divided into three categories of owners. I mean, broadly into have the haves and the have nots, but with between the haves, there is the stupid money, uh, sort of the, like Alex mentioned, the Emirates type of money. And then there are owners um, who are loaded, uh, like the Glazer family, but they are in it as a business, right? Um, yeah. And so how does how does that dynamic uh, coexist even within the same league, like the English Premier League, where you have owners who are willing to just kind of vanity spend, like 
Abramovich did with Chelsea just to win. And then you have uh, these owners, especially from the States who are coming in, who have a portfolio of teams. And it seems to me like they're less happy uh, to throw my good money after bad. Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, there's there's been there's been a lot of friction, and you, you spoke about the Glaziers. I think you know I know a United fan, um, Manchester United fan, who's supported them his whole life. You know, thirty years, and and when he heard about the Glaziers coming in, he he promised he would never go back ever to, to Old Trafford to watch a game again. And and you know that's that's rooted in this idea that these owners are in it for pure profit and greed. They, they, they don't care necessarily about the club and. You know, I think I think that the, the guy that that kind of spearheaded, um, you know, the European Super League, you know, Perez, mm-hmm. he mentioned that you know he's been watching football for, for for twenty years. He's been in the game for twenty years. Well, he's about seventy four or something. So, you know, in actual fact, he's he's not really a football fan, and and that's where it, it stems from. And so you have these super elite clubs that that you have, you know, the. The, the real rich who are able to spend money. And, and as Alex mentioned, they've tried to stem that with this financial fair play. Um, but the precedent has been set now and that the rich clubs really are getting richer and, and the poor clubs are kind of struggling. However, the pyramid structure still allows for those teams to break in. I mean, this season we might see West Ham that break into, you know, the, the Champions League and that's going to be a big boost for them. Um, but generally speaking, it's it's they say it's a game of two halves. It, it, it kind of feels like that with the way club ownership is as well, I'd say. What is the role of the TV deals then? Because uh, the game has not just stayed within the confines of the continent. It is massively popular um, in Asia. Uh, certain teams, I think, make incredible revenue from uh, broadcast rights into Asia. Uh, it's becoming increasingly more popular in the US and their affiliate teams to the European ones um, across the Major League Soccer um, um, League. So what is the role of the TV deals, especially uh, when it comes to money? Uh, do English Does English football enjoy kind of a lion's share of those um, contracts or is it more evenly spread around the continent? Yeah, it's a good one and actually, you know, I, I, as you know, I book outdoor advertising for, for clients and I've done stuff and, and, and try to get in around the, the perimeter boarding at, at, at football stadiums. And it's almost impossible because they're tied into, into deals and, and English Premier League clubs in particular. Um, you know, a lot of the advertising they experience is from Asia. And, you know, you'll be watching a football game in England and there'll be, you know, advertising a completely different language might be selling a beer or or something, you know, along those lines. And actually the Premier League, I think you're right, is is easily the one that is considered the top league. It gets the most revenue. I mean, I suspect the average viewing figure, I'm sure we can Google it, is is for a Premier League game is is absolutely in the hundreds of millions globally. Um, And so the European leagues, there's a little bit of jealousy. And I think the way this all came about was spearheaded from a team, Real Madrid, Barcelona, Juventus, who've, who've really kind of struggled on a revenue standpoint to kind of keep a pace with the Premier League. Um, and it's perhaps no surprise that actually it was the six English English clubs that, that backed out first. You know, they had the kind of power to do so. And so the Premier League by far is the, the one that is the, you know, the crown of, of, of sponsorship and, you know, of investment and, and certainly the global figures. I think, yeah, I think the, the Premier League has what they just signed a billion dollar deal with Sky a couple of years ago, and that's going to go up again. Amazon do a night, one of the nights, um, kind of like they do with the NFL Thursday night mm-hmm. football. Um, and what's interesting is how the TV revenue is divvied up. It's not like the Spanish league where most of the money will go to Real and Barcelona. It's more evenly split. So if you're in the premiership, you do get a fair chunk of the TV uh, money, even if you're you know, 17, 18, 19, 20 in the league. So that's why being in the premiership is so important. That's why the, the you know, promotions and the relegations are so important to those clubs. Um, and then in terms of the, you know, this is going to go super marketing for a second. Uh, in, the, in, the, in the 
in baseball behind the batter when they're you know when the, when you're watching those two this is what i realized when i came here those are two green screens so they can do local advertising based on whoever is doing the um the broadcasting and i was wondering craig you're in you're in out you're in out of home how long do you think it's going to be until the billboards around the side of the pitch in all of the premier league stadiums are going to be green so that they can get you know generate more revenue in local markets you know you can sell that space to 50 countries you know that's going to be a lot more revenue than buying it in you know just that and watching on tv yeah that's a really good shout and um mate you're in the wrong business you should you should present that to, <laughs> to the premier league clubs it's a great idea and um you know the, the, the one of the things that was discussed on the european super league and, and about increasing the revenue was actually clubs were going to start offering subscription services in a, in a tv model and, and you know you've got your netflix subscription and you've got your tottenham hotspur subscription to watch these games and and actually yeah. would there even be a case of having a major tv broadcaster you know to actually show these games it might have just come straight direct from the clubs. so clubs are always looking at ways to you know maximize and and really squeeze every little dollar and cent out of you know the, the, the game which again comes back to where this hatred of the european super league come from and we'll touch on we'll, we'll touch on that next but I, I i am looking up at some stats for uh valuations team valuations and there are three teams in european soccer um that are valued at over three billion Ooh. uh real okay. madrid real madrid at four plus um barcelona barcelona at four Man oh, nice. Manchester United at 3.8 and Bayern Munich at three, right? And then there is um, a few that are in the twos and a few that are over a billion. The last one that's at one. a billion is Paris Saint-Germain. What What I really want to know is, is Tottenham higher than Arsenal in this? In this? They surely are. Tottenham no is, is uh, no, it's below. It's separated ah. by Liverpool. It's separated by Liverpool. Bad source. But. Uh, that's <laughs> fake news. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, hold on. I, in my in my source here at Forbes, Arsenal are above PSG at a valuation of two point eight. Yeah, so... Arsenal. Arsenal is above P, uh, PSG. Yeah, PSG yeah. is at one. Yeah. Well, I think it depends on the source. I'm I'm looking I'm looking at Statista, but um, if you consider what you guys just said, right, that European football is reliant on uh, these global broadcast deals that it's massively popular in Asia. It's got viewership in Africa and Latin America. It's got uh, fans in the United States. It's on, it, it's truly on a global basis versus the US sports, which are primarily watched in the US uh, because they are so specific, yeah. right? Um, if you think about that, and then you look at just most valuable sports teams worldwide, the top teams, the top five teams, um, are all US teams in terms of valuations. Dallas Cowboys at five and a half billion, the New York Yankees at five, the New York Knicks, which have not won shit in <laughs> God knows how long at 4.5, the LA Lakers and the Golden State Warriors. And only after the Warriors do you get Real Madrid, the most valuable team wow. in European football and global football. And I think this gets us like nicely into this next bit of the conversation about the nexus and the origin of the super league uh, because the owners of these teams the ones that decided to split away from the rest of european football and launch the super league they basically said look we should be a lot more valuable and we should be earning a lot more money uh given the footprint that we have globally and we just aren't and they specifically pointed to the us and the format that the us enjoys um and said that our teams should be exceeding the valuations of the Dallas Cowboys and, you know, the Golden State Warriors. And so that, that yeah. seemed to be, I mean, money the, is, is, is the reason here. But it seems to be that um, this, this has been batted around for quite some time, this idea of starting a new league. It's something that even, even I read Silvio Berlusconi back in the day um, proposed about a decade ago, um, and it, it never went anywhere. So... Who was behind this from the start? You know, you mentioned Perez. I think he's the owner of Real Madrid. Um, mm -hmm. Who were the characters? Can you guys speak to that a little bit, Craig? Maybe you can give us kind of a little bit of a digest of uh, who started this and then who followed um, the rest 
Yeah, I think um, I don't know if we'll ever actually really know how it, how it came about. I mean, it's been banged about for for years and years. I mean, Perez seems to be the the focal point in in the press and and certainly of, of hatred. But you basically have a, a group behind closed doors, effectively, who've made these these deals. And I mean, let's to be clear, you know, this wasn't just a letter that was signed last week. This is a a hundred plus page document that's been worked on for, for years to, to get to the point that it got to. And it was done in secret. It was done with these rich owners. And I think really what they've done is, is look at the clubs involved, even those that aren't successful, i.e. Arsenal. And they've still <laughs> looked, they've still looked at the global reach and, and, you know, how, much money they can make from them. I mean, Tottenham has got a brand new 60,000 seat stadium. You know, it's, it holds NFL games there every season. Um, they've done a partnership with the NFL. Um, even the stadium itself was built with an NFL pitch built underneath the soccer pitch. So it's all about money. It's all about money. But Tottenham, I hate to say it, we haven't had success in years and years and years and years. And, you know, it, it comes down 1961. to 1961. That yeah, probably, yeah. Black, they Just in case laugh, you forgot. They? When, we, when, when, te- when television was black and white was the last time we won it. And, <laughs> you know, th- these, these owners have come in and not understood why the game is so beautiful. And, and that's the, the problem. And so the likes yeah. of Perez, and I hate to say this for our audience listening, but there is a little bit of anti-American sentiment around ownership of clubs at the moment. Cronke for... For, yep. for, for your lot over over the pond there on, on Arsenal's side, like there is this sentiment that American owners are coming in, not understanding the game and basically just treating it as if it's pure business, like just opening a, a business and closing the business. And it's sad to see. It, I mean, that's a really interesting point to, to bring up the, like the the American owners who come in, you know, Cronky owns the the Rams as Gorsha very well knows. Um, he also owns a football team and an, an NHL team, I think. Um, Liverpool is owned by John Henry, who owns the Red Sox, also co-owned by LeBron James, and United's owned by the Glazers. So three of the the big clubs in England are owned by Americans. Uh, who only know the American way of of sport. And if you take like the NHL, no, the NFL, for example, that is a spectacle. And we've talked about this on on the pod before. That is, you know, you go to a show and some American football happens. You know, that is very much the, the idea of generating as much revenue as you can from each person that goes to the stadium, whether that's like $250 tickets, you know, $15 beers, $15 hot dogs, the merch, the pregame, the postgame. It's all about the experience. You know, the new stadium, the Ram Stadium in LA is, is it's not a stadium designed for sport necessarily. It's a stadium designed for all of the peripherals that go with it. Like, you know, in downtown LA, the, um, at the, What's it? The, the Staples Center and the and all of the the Wolfgang Puck next to it, like it's all for eating and drinking and spending money and being there for hours before and and hours after. The experience in England is, you go to the pub beforehand and like an hour before the game starts, you go to the game. It's forty five minutes. You run inside, have a beer because you can't drink on the on the terraces. You go back out for forty five minutes and then you leave and go have another beer somewhere. And that's the, and that's the experience. It's about the sport. It's about the what happens on the pitch. There's no shows. There's no tailgating. There's no anything like that in terms of like the experience of how you you enjoy the game. And the American owners have come in and gone, how can we monetize that? How can we make it more of a thing? You know, if you could have, um, you know, if you had like. It, so then, yeah. So then you have the the Super League, which is around how can you get the biggest, uh, most valuable clubs? You know, not necessarily based on sporting merit, because if you did, Arsenal wouldn't be there, and Tottenham wouldn't be there. Um, you know, we have languished mid-table um, for a couple of years now. There's no reason for Arsenal to be 
in the Super League based on sporting merit right now. Um, but they're in there because they, they've got the, the the global brand. If you can have like you know Real playing Liverpool every three weeks and Arsenal playing Barcelona and Tottenham playing AC Milan and you know Atletico Madrid playing Juventus, like those are big games that people want to watch. But when they become the regular, you know, midweek every as a league, you lose the. And that's what makes that what makes the Champions League so desirable to watch because it's not guaranteed that you're going to get Ronaldo versus Messi, um, like he had, you know, in theory this season with the Juventus and, and Barcelona. And you want you want those games. You want the sporting merit. Like you've earned your place to play the big teams. It's like when West Ham goes in and they're going to play Real Madrid next season. That's huge because there's no other way they would be meant to play them. And if you if you lock that out. You don't you don't get that anymore. You don't get that desire, and that's where I think coming back full circle to the beginning of of that is the American teams have you know you know the the Jets get to play the big teams every season, despite the fact that the Jaguars get to play you know the big teams every season, despite the fact they go one in seventeen um, in in the season, and then the reward for being the worst team in the league, they get the number one draft pick. And they get to pick the best player next season. I get it because it's supposed to be more um, equal. If you suck, you get first pick of the best player. But also, like if you suck, you don't get to be in the league anymore. Can you imagine if the Jets got dropped into the into the college um, leagues and the top three college teams get get brought up? That that would be amazing. I think. Um, I'm looking at the list of the teams that participate that signed up to be in the Super League, right? And you guys have. I think focused a lot on the English clubs. It's Arsenal, Chelsea, Liverpool, Manchester City, Manchester United, and, and Tottenham. Um, yeah. If I look, I look at this list, and I don't know for sure, but you can correct me. But um, Arsenal is foreign-owned, uh, American-owned. Chelsea yep. is Russian-owned. Liverpool yep. is owned by who? American. John Henry. Manchester City is Qatar. Emirati. Emirati. Manu is American Glazer family, and Tottenham is. English. English. So there's one English-owned club in this entire yep. list. And then I look at the rest of the <laughs> list. And then I look at the rest of the list, and it's Atletico Madrid, Barcelona, Real Madrid in um, in La Liga, and then um, AC Milan, Inter Milan, and Juventus in Serie A, right? Those were the founding teams. Yeah. Those are owned by uh, local business people. Um, Perez yeah. is Spanish, I believe. Um, the rest of the teams are... so. What's interesting here is that uh, the you know you can talk about the Americans miscalculating the foreign ownership miscalculating. I think there's also maybe an element of you know Britain having gone out of Europe uh, post Brexit, a little bit of like you know the splintering cell, and it's fine to be in that. How the heck uh, did the Italians and the Spanish miscalculate the sentiment, given how integral to the fabric of the cities these teams are in, um, and kind of the pride that each one of these clubs carries. Uh, how did they miscalculate? And how is it that none of the teams from either Bundesliga in Germany or PSG in France who were courted aggressively by the Super League, uh, how did they have the brains to wait this out and see and not join? Because it feels like there was some massive greed and the hope that by having the English clubs lash onto the Super League idea, they were going to be able to ram this through. It just seemed like a huge miscalculation in terms of popular sentiment, um, you know, the sense of history, all of that stuff. Do you guys have any thoughts on sort of outside of England, how this played out? Well, the Bundesliga um, is owned and they have this as like, you know, legally, they're owned 50 plus one um, by the fans. So, you know, the vote is basically the fans get 50% plus one. And whoever else owns it is in, you know, technically the minority. So that's why I think none of the Bundesliga clubs joined because none of the fans would have allowed it. Um, I think that the you know PSG, who you know, quite rightly should have been at the table, I think there were three other spaces um, of clubs to be invited to, and I think they were just biding their time to see what would happen. And I think their owner was more conscious of the fact of the backlash 
I mean, you can't really say PSG are really in touch with with football because they're spending, you know, millions and millions and millions on players and salaries and trying to buy the league in the same way that Chelsea did in you know, the early 2000s. So I, I think that they were, they took a step back. I think had this gone well, they would have been in the, you know, the next team announced. And I'm sure that they were there ready to sign. Um, I don't think that the Bundesliga teams would have been in there because, you know, despite Bayern Munich having, you know, such a, a, a valuable brand, I don't think the fans and the, the fan owners would have allowed it to happen. That seems to be the fans seem to be one factor we didn't discuss. Fans, even in England, play a bigger role, the fan clubs, the supporters, uh, in the in the running of the teams and influencing of the business decisions, Craig, correct? Um, versus what we see in the US. Yeah. I mean, there's a there's a great quote from a famous footballer, Eric Cantona, and he said that you can change your politics, you can change your religion, you can change your wife but you can't change your football team. And there's something about, I mean, when I moved to the US, there's something about um, franchisees over here in, in sports that you can have a team move, you know, city and people are okay with it. And, and, and as someone who obviously follows soccer in, in Europe, to me, that was just so jarring. Like, how would that be possible? And, you know, me and Alex can, can go to the pub now and, and, you know, have banter and, and talk about how our clubs were founded, you know, a hundred years ago and, and one moved to North Woolwich and, you know, we're talking down the road, yeah. but even that small little bit is enough to create this rivalry. Whereas here um, it is quite accepted to, to do that. And so there was this huge, you know, underestimated kind of feeling from these club owners of what these clubs meant. And here's the other thing to note about the, the clubs. You know, we look at it now, we look at it as kind of big money, you know, all these broadcasts, all these sponsorship deals, but these clubs started, don't forget, as kind of community football clubs, you know, with workers, dock workers and, and, and coal miners and, and kind of the history that was built for them, you know, there are towns in football where the football club is the lifeblood of, of the area. And in fact, Tottenham is, is, is similar to that. I mean, you look at Tottenham, no disrespect to, to, to my countrymen there, but it's not a very nice place to walk around at night. Let's put it that way. And you take that football club out, those businesses will die. Um, so it's just, it's just different. I mean, it is, it's just been totally underestimated as to what these clubs mean and, Usually you find if, if you support a club, it's because your friend or your, or your dad did and, and his dad did. And it, and it can go back generations, you know. Is, that, um, is it fair to say that then um, the fans view the owners as custodians versus, um, yeah. you know, the way that we view well, them in the US? That's as- how they should be viewed. And that's, I think, going to Cronky, and I want to ask you a question in a second. Going back to Cronky, he he came out and said, you know, where you know, the history and um, and what it means to the fans, we're not owners, we're custodians for the longevity of the club. And Kroenke has come out and said exactly zero words since this whole thing has happened. And he's known as Silent Stan because he very much views Arsenal as a as a business. But your experience with Kroenke, you know, as a fan, how did you feel about him moving the Rams? Yeah, I mean, it was... Uh... You know, Craig said rightly in the U.S. teams move uh, not that often, but they move. Um, it's always an event, uh, and it's primarily driven by money. Um, the experience was bad, and I mean, the Rams were. You know, I wouldn't say the Rams were as integral to the fabric of St. Louis as um, the other two teams there were because they were recent transplants. But they won the Super Bowl in St. Louis. Uh, people adopted them. People. There was a generation of kids that grew up. Um, believing that the Rams were there to stay. And um, the move by, you know, the move uh, that was orchestrated by Kroenke to LA, um, it was, I'd say it was malicious, right? It, because all of the words that he was saying towards St. Louis um, were hurtful. 
that St. Louis was a city that was past its prime, that it was not worthy of an NFL team. Uh, it was striking at the heart of, you know, an identity of many of the people who, you know, in the heart of hearts, as Craig said, you know, you kind of understand that, you know, there's truth to what you're saying, but you're not in a position to say that sort of thing. And um, I guess kind of spinning it back to, you know, and there's so, and so I guess the feeling towards Kroenke from anyone in St. Louis is that he is awful. Um, and um, I've even seen um, people wearing t-shirts that say on the back, Kroenke sucks, you know, going to Cardinals games and, um, and Blues games. So there's a feeling of that for sure. Um, but I won't pretend that that team was part of the community in the way that Sunderland, for instance, is uh, in the UK. You know, there's a whole TV series on Amazon about uh, about them. And it, you could truly really see that, you know, that team is the identity of the entire city and people bleed and think about it so much. Um, and so I feel like none of the American owners could really appreciate or even, you know, we haven't really heard from the Emirati and Qatari owners, but I'm guessing they couldn't really appreciate uh, the degree to which these teams and the leagues yeah. in which they participated and the meritocracy that existed and the kind of the pyramid system that they were a part of, like how much all of that mattered um, to them. The players seemed to know it because the players came out from what I've read, many of the players and said, what the hell is happening? We're against this. Some of the coaches came out yeah. and managers and said the same sort of thing. So they understood, the fans understood I would imagine the sponsors would have understood and that would have been a different uh, thing. You know, we've seen some really snarky ads coming out post this whole thing. Um, but the owners, man, they just seem to. Um, and it's interesting that the financing came from an American company. JP Morgan was the one who forked over four billion euros to um, underwrite this whole enterprise. So it really seemed to me disconnected from the uh, what was going on the ground. I think I think if you look at the way that the American sports leagues are run, I'm not saying this is purely an American. It's not the American owners who are driving this, but if you look at how much money they make and how much power they wield over the rest of, um, over like the TV deals, then you can see why they wanted to do this. And if you have a bunch of teams who, from a brand value, are you know top ten in the world. Like globally, not talking like you know, you know the, the Dallas Cowboys are not a, a global brand in in as much as like Real Madrid or Barcelona. But if you've got those brands who are brand value number one, but hemorrhaging cash, and I think Perez came out and said, you know, it's how is it that the English top six clubs are losing money and the rest of the fourteen aren't? And it's like that's not he's like so disconnected from the rest of the football world. Just because he's running his club in a terrible way doesn't mean everyone else is. Like, you know, there are the super clubs who are artificially rich, um, but then you've got like Arsenal who built a new stadium and spent ten years sacrificing, you know, Premier League potential Premier League wins by selling players to pay for the stadium, by investing and you know balancing the books so that we weren't in huge debt. Whereas you get like the Glazers come in and they'll, you know, put Manchester United in 600 million in debt, or you have the Barcelona's and the, uh, and the Real Madrid just spending as much as they can to get the biggest names, you know, on, you know, on their teams. So, you know, from that point of view, you could see how the American model of, you know, we're guaranteed this money that's not going through UEFA, that we can do all the deals ourselves that we're going to get all of this like $3 billion in, in cash each. I mean, that's ludicrous and guaranteed that every year because they're going to do these deals because people will want to watch these teams play despite, you know, not necessarily being, you know, I'm not, I wasn't looking forward to Arsenal being the whipping boys each week against, you know, the biggest teams in Europe, except Tottenham. Um, and, and, you know, but you can see where that much money comes from. And I think what I thought was the, the biggest issue is that whilst people have issues with UEFA, they are the, the status quo and they're an organization and the organization is making billions of dollars or millions or hundreds of millions. 
but it's when you get like individual people who run these clubs who are taking advantage of the reputations that they have and the people who have built them to line their own pockets i think that's where everyone had an issue with you could really point to Cronky and say you only joined this so you could get rich at the expense of the club like they fired gunasaurus because of covid and they knew they were going to get three billion in supposedly three billion in cash you know this week like how like how are they how are they able to like really think about the fans like, i think that's where the fans were like hell no you can't take our club and make the money for yourself even if we went to uefa that's more of a nebulous organization where we can't point the finger at someone but this is so blatantly about making money for themselves and not about the clubs and the future of football that people was just like absolutely not and then you are uh, the you, between- you you brought up um the dallas cowboys story and uh just just chime in um just a funny anecdote on that but do you know why the stadium roof retracts uh, I do not per per the owner Jerry Jones. The reason he says that he built this retractable roof is so that God could watch his team play. <laughs> nice. So he might disagree with you about no one outside of Texas caring about the Dallas Cowboys. All right, maybe God cares about the da- Dallas Cowboys, but if they did, they would be doing better. Just just for our, just for our viewers, who, who's Gunasaurus? Alex, you mentioned Gunasaurus. They fired Gunasaurus. Gunasaurus is the uh, Arsenal mascot, and he is a dinosaur, a big Why? green dinosaur. And, and that sums up the club. That's all I'm going to say. That's all you need to know. It's better than having a cock on a football. <laughs> oh, okay, fair enough. I won't. I won't go where I was going to go with that. But sure. <laughs> um, okay, so. Uh, there, there was an element of COVID speeding this whole thing up, right? Teams pled poverty or basically said they were losing out on a lot of revenue. The biggest clubs were like, all right, let's let's do this. Uh, that's what, you know, I read that COVID was an accelerator to this sort of thing. Be that as it may, um, just talk us through the through the drama of the of the four days uh, where when this kind of got announced, when it imploded, why it imploded. Um, and then there's a follow-up question to you guys on sort of the long-lasting impact. But um, Craig, you know, could you give us a sort of a you know a summary of how this whole thing happened, and also like the UEFA announcement that was supposed to happen around Champions League, uh, you know, concurrently? Why that mattered? Yeah, good, good question. So it was interesting, really. We we kind of knew this this European Super League was was coming. It's been talked about for for a while, but. It sort of came out of the blue that that these clubs had signed a letter of intent um, that that effectively supposedly locked them into this. You know that it wasn't going to be easy to get out of. And it, funny enough, it, it was actually for me anyway. It was one of the biggest TV broadcasters in the UK, Sky Sports. They have a pundit, Gary Neville, and he came out. He used to play for Manchester United. He's now a pundit. He came out so strongly. From, from literally an hour or two of that news being announced. And he kind of rallied the the, the, the yeah. country. He rallied mm-hmm. all fans. And, you know, his counterpart, Jamie Carragher, who's a rival to him, you know, he played for Liverpool, he backed it up. And so you had this kind of movement almost created overnight of, you know what, I don't care if you're an Arsenal fan and or you're a Tottenham fan. We know that this is wrong. And then from there, it just manifests itself. Then you had the government from the UK get involved. You spoke about Brexit earlier, but there was talk about, okay, we're going to stop permits for for these players playing, you know, in in Europe. You then had other situations where royalty got involved. I think Prince William is is, um, an ambassador for the FA. So he's the chairman of FA. The chairman of the FA. So, you know, he was getting, so it just became this thing in, in, in three, four days, it just it just exploded up, and it was it was a movement across Europe, and you know it got to the point where fans were were chanting outside their own stadiums, saying we want the owners out. Um, the the Champions League format was also always going to to be you know announced, and I think it probably got pushed 
uh, a little bit quicker based on what happened with 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 the Super League. But but generally speaking, the point of the the Champions League to try and appease some of these rich clubs, which is terrible in itself, but nonetheless is is to kind of make the competition bigger and and effectively give places to teams um, that probably wouldn't have gotten before. So there is, you know, if, if the new format had happened this season, I think six English clubs would have got into the Champions League rather than four. So it's still kind of supporting, if you like, the the rich. And, and if you're a smaller club in, say, Austria, you know, what chance really do you have of getting those extra places? Probably not a lot. So... It, it happened very quickly that the Champions League got changed um, to try and appease. I don't think it will. And I personally feel that that COVID was a convenient excuse, if I'm honest. I, I think, like I say, this letter wasn't signed overnight. This has been in the making for years and years and years. So, you know, COVID is, is you know, it, it's been terrible on all of us, you know, for, for lower league clubs, they've had to furlough their players. Players have been playing for free. And yet you had these billionaires complaining that their clubs weren't earning hundreds of millions. And, and as Alex said, you know, earlier, they're just run poorly, some of these clubs. They really are. And there's not a golden ticket. And, you know, we can blame COVID on everything. But in this case, I, I don't think so. I think it's, I think it's, it's, it's pathetic that they would use that as an excuse. Like they, like they, yes, it's, it's hurt the clubs and, and speaking solely about football and the football clubs, like the lack of ticket revenue is a big deal. You know, people not renewing season tickets, like guaranteed revenue, like that's yes, but you're not creating a, you know, a 20 team super league in a year. And it just seems really really tone deaf to suggest that whilst they were fur- like Arsenal furloughed 55 people um or they or they removed those those jobs then at the same time they're negotiating for a three billion dollar you know entrance prize into this into this league so it just feels like it's very tone deaf from the from the the statements and I think the fact that it was like four of the owners had statements across all 12 clubs felt really bad. Like we had a Joel Glazer quote on an Arsenal letter. And it was just like, it's, it just didn't really get the, the understanding of the fans. Like no one wants to see Manchester United owner on Arsenal letterhead as a quote in a positive light. And, and like, it's stupid as that sounds, that's what fans care about. They care yeah. about their club and they care about their hating their rivals you know that's what that's what the whole idea of the sport is i want to get your guys's then take on um any if at all long uh, long term impact and i think back to, uh, as a point of comparison mm-hmm. to a couple of years ago when uh, the nba which um, has been pushing heavily into china uh, and his building inroads and bridges uh, into mainland China suffered a huge setback when the uh, Houston Rockets came out in support of the protesters in Hong Kong. Overnight, games were canceled. Sponsors, um, Chinese sponsors, uh, brands pulled their sponsorships. Uh, TV uh, rights got terminated. There was a material, material blow uh, for the NBA as a whole and for the teams that that were a part of this Chinese push. Uh, based on that one misstep, shall we say. From where I sit here listening to, to you to talk, I feel like the teams in England will come out scotch-free, completely unblemished, um, having uh, almost stabbed their fans in the back because at the end of the day, they will not suffer for it. Am I right in this assumption? I, I think from a a league standpoint they probably won't have any issues i think from a you know a european standpoint it would be very it, it, they have the leverage in in their brand value if you kick out you know arsenal tottenham real madrid barcelona uh, from the champions league and the europa league for the next season you you lose the, the law of from the rest of the teams playing those and and people won't tune in so i think they knew what they were doing when they signed this 
in yeah, terms but, of like what they were going to bring. But but more from like the, the fans, the brands, like that sort of thing. Oh yeah, from, a, from but I think from a fan standpoint, like Craig said, it's very hard to change your club, but you can hate the owner. And I think I think maybe I don't know about Manchester City, but you know, I think anyone from Liverpool, Arsenal, uh, Tottenham, um, United, like they they love the club and what the club represents, and they hate the owners. And owners can change, and clubs can't. So I think you're going to see a lot of protests about changing ownership, um, but not so much about uh, your your club. And if that means you you don't renew your season ticket, you don't go to games until the owners are out, then that's then I think that's what it's going to be. You think that's really going to happen? So I, I've got a slightly different know. take. I've got a different take. I think there is going to be punishments on this. And I, and I think, um, you know, I, I think UEFA won't necessarily take the punishments because I think when they came out very quickly afterwards when the six English clubs sort of called themselves out of this European Super League, said they weren't going to do it. UEFA were very kind of conciliatory and sort of said, you know what? I'm glad you guys saw the light. We welcome you back into the family type thing. Yeah. Um, however, the domestic leagues and I think the Premier League, I, I still think there could be punishments from point deductions, which will hurt, which will hurt where they get placed in the league. And for each position in the Premier League, I think it's something like a million million dollars or something. Um, you know, that I could see there being fines. I think already the, the UK government is going to set up a, a a kind of a fan group that, that kind of talks about how the sport should be run. So I don't think it's it's going to be the end of it. And, and look, we've all spoke about the money and the greed. Let's be really honest here. Me and Alex and, and lots of people out there support clubs that have lots of money. We're not against clubs earning more money with you know the european super league in itself wouldn't have been a terrible idea if they had set it up in the right way the problem with it was the the competition it was the lack of of uh the underdog or anyone else being in that club that's the issue and so i all you know perez has come out and already said this isn't dead i always feel like they're going to bring this back but they're going to change it to be competition based that is to say other teams can get into this club other teams can get relegated from this club and i i sadly think that is what's that will be the way that it it ultimately falls in the next five to ten years that this Mm. this will come back just in a different form well i think that's i mean that's it's, it's also because uefa and fifa are corrupt as hell and they also don't care about clubs or fans or players because if they really did they wouldn't have come out with a new Champions League format, which which is more than it adds more than a hundred games a season. They wouldn't be doing, um, you know, they you know they talk about and um, you know anti homophobia, anti racism, and then they go to Russia and they go to Qatar and they change the entire calendar around um, to have a Winter World Cup. Like they don't give a shit about fans and they don't give a shit about players. And they came out and were like, this is all we do. We want to protect the, the sanctity of football and we want to protect the fan experience. Like they wanted to protect their revenue because they make too much money. And really, they don't, they don't care either. They want to make as much money as possible. And I, and I think, like Craig said, there will be another, you know, this was like a, the first skirmish. How much can we get away with? How much can each club try and take for themselves all right we can't do what we did you know all right let's let's input more merit let's have no fixed clubs but we still need to be able to have our own tv rights to do our own digital you know deals you know like like right now in the u.s arsenal have digital rights for replays within an hour or two i can be on instagram and i can watch the replays of the game that happened that morning which before i moved here was impossible you were looking at like every like dodgy site out there trying to see what happened what goals and all that you're watching you know clips from from middle east and tv with fantastic commentators when they when they score goals by the way um but you know they're trying to figure out like how can we make money and have fans behind us and i think it's not it's not dead 
this will happen again and they'll do it more efficiently and in a way that the fans will will care about it more. And I think right now, if UEFA and FIFA don't change it in a way that brings it into like you know, the present rather than where it was 50 years ago, they're, they're going to lose. And I don't care that FIFA lose. I care about the sport and the integrity of the sport being preserved. However, that's run from whichever organization. Well, I think that it'll be interesting to see how how it plays out because as as you said, Craig Perez did say that this is not that they'll probably go back, they'll probably tinker with this, get more allies, uh, be maybe a little bit more inclusive in this. Um, however, I can't, I yeah, I can't help but think that the desire to make more money is going to supersede um, any sort of capitulation um, to the fans. Um, I don't think that anyone is resting easy within any of the um, European top tier teams. Even looking at the US and looking at MLS, the fact that LA Galaxy is valued at half a billion dollars already, that's probably got to suck for teams who are head and shoulders above that, much more famous around the world, have you know histories that matter, um, and they are not as financially competitive um, as uh, some of their you know, counterparts in North America. And so Galaxy have to do a great job branding. Like they, they brought in David Beckham in 2007, you know, they brought in, um, they, they bring in these, these big players. I think they get David Villa, like they, and Chikorisa, like they bring in the aging European players so that they can still hold that brand value. They may not be the best team. They may not be the oldest team, but, they know how to market themselves. Yeah, but I think I, I think relative to the global the global football, not just within the U.S. That's what I mean, right? Like yeah. it's it's the it's the it's the has-beens and the not quite there players that that populate the MLS. And yeah, it's the leagues become a lot more competitive and a lot more interesting. But you know, LAFC, which is what two years old, is the second most Hell valuable. Yeah, LAFC is the second most valuable team in in U.S. soccer at at nearly the same valuation as Galaxy. So it's got to, th- th- these types of dynamics, I mean, you can't be an owner in Europe and think, man, all this money is flying by me and, you know, I cannot, you know, I can't increase the value of my franchise because, you know, fans and politicians think otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what's interesting as well? Like the the World Cup, the 1994 World Cup in USA was kind of a seminal moment for the sport over here. Yeah. And, you know, MLS really sort of piggybacks on that. And I think, is it 2026, the, the next World Cup here in the US? And it's going to be really interesting to see how these clubs market themselves, how they piggyback on what is going to be a kind of an, another golden era over here for, for soccer. And, and you know, is, is MLS going to become a league that, if we're honest, we, you know, Globally is, I don't mean to say it's laughed at, but it's it's not taken seriously like a lot of the European leagues. But I, I could see that, you know, in, in the next five, 10 years with the World Cup being here, we might find that MLS could be as as competitive or, or, or you know, considered in the same sentences as La Liga and, and, and all these other, you know, European leagues that we talk about. So that's going to be interesting. Watch that space on what happens with 2026. And if you look at the the U.S. men's national team, like they are in all of the big European clubs, and in the same way that Spain and Germany did it, they've been working on this for a for a while. And I yeah. really think, like by twenty twenty six, they are in a, with a really good chance of probably winning winning the World Cup because they have some of the best young players right now that are just going to dominate. And you can you can see like. You know, you put in that work and from a over years and years and years, and they can and if you can then translate that into growing homegrown talent and keeping them in the MLS, the MLS I think is the most undervalued league, which is why you're seeing so much focus on it right now from people with lots and lots of money because that is going to be worth. I was reading in the Athletic there was a really good article uh, recently about how the cost to join has quadrupled or you know quintupled in the last few years and that you know 200 million just to join now like david beckham's bought in with um into miami 
like it's it the the league is gonna make a lot of money and it's gonna be a i think it's gonna be a force to be reckoned with from a from a product point of view like the 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 players that are coming out right now are gonna be really good well guys i wanna i wanna wrap this up and i wanna thank you for providing your your insight and i think it's 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 very interesting to hear from a fan's standpoint the history how the history plays into is how cities played into this how the locations of the teams everything everything that you talked about helped me and i think will help our listeners understand um why the super league got off to such a bad start why it was so toxic um the heineken ad um following this debacle you know i think um sums it up very well don't drink and start a league it says um you know <laughs> probably pay a little bit more attention to what's going on um so thank you again and you know we'll see what happens and we might have uh, a round two on this um, in a few months time or maybe a year's time when they refresh their approach and try it again um so uh appreciate it and uh, till next time till next time come on you thank spurs you